Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for you alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So you may have noticed that in our Sunday worship, whether you're here for the first time or been with us for a while, that we always read several passages from the Bible out loud. Um, what you may not know is we, we don't make these up on our own. We don't just pick them at random. Uh, we follow what's called a lectionary. It's a set schedule uh, designed to give us a regular diet of the whole Bible. Um, and and what, why, the reason that's good for us is twofold. First, it means that when we come to the scriptures, um, you're not just listening to my favorite passages over and over again. Secondly, it means that if there is something hard or something that makes us uncomfortable, we don't skip it. We'll still read it and we'll listen to it. Uh, sometimes we hear a passage and we find ourselves kind of like these disciples in John 6 who say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Uh, Tex, who came up and read our scriptures, he read Psalm 16, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He read Ephesians 5, the word of the Lord. <laughs> I know, it's a tricky one. And that's why we're going to look at it today. Um, Tim Keller, who pastored for years in New York City, once said that to stay away from Christianity because parts of the Bible's teaching is offensive assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have anything to say that upsets you. But in any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you and challenge you and talk with you. He actually illustrates this uh, using an old movie, The Stepford Wives. Anyone seen The Stepford Wives? There was like an old version, and then they remade it, but I think that version's even kind of old now. Um, it's not that good of a movie, so I'll spoil it for you and not feel bad. Uh, but here's what's happening in this movie. Um, the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, this little bedroom community of New York, um, they have decided that they want to have the perfect spouses. So they have begun systematically turning their wives and replacing them with robots who had never crossed the will of their husbands. Now, this group of robots uh, were wonderfully compliant, um, attractive, uh, but none of the relationships were intimate or personal or real between these individuals. Uh, and he develops this further. Tim Keller says, if you pick and choose uh, what you want to believe about the faith and reject the rest, in a similar way, you're making a robot. And you'll have a step for God. Um, essentially, a, a, a creation of your own making not a God whom you can have a relationship with and genuine interaction. Um, and so as you may have guessed, again, we're going to look at Ephesians 5 today. Because uh, it's in the lectionary and it's staring at us. We only get this once every three years. And I couldn't imagine reading this passage and not digging into it. Um, I will say, I know that it's been a full week. Most of us bring a lot into a service like this. We've been... Uh, maybe looking at the news abroad and praying about the earthquake in Haiti or the situation in Afghanistan. Maybe you have even loved ones, friends or family um, who are connected to that. Uh, more broadly, COVID-19 is still doing its thing. I think I mentioned we have lots of our members and regulars who are quarantined today. 
Uh, they're just not able to be with us. So we're kind of spread out, and we've got plenty of elbow room. And so with all that, I was like, Ephesians 5? Well, here's the thing. We don't have to do all the work in a service in the sermon. And so in a little bit, we have a section called the prayers of the people. And we're going to bring all those concerns, all the ways that our hearts have been heavy, and we'll lay them before the Lord. Uh, and we'll pray in that moment. But again, when we read a passage like this, I just said, man, we have to dig in. We have to see what does Ephesians 5 uh, say to us today uh, here in Athens. Uh, so let's look at it together. You have, you have it there in your bulletin. Uh, but the first part, it's all about mutual submission. Um, I will say a lot of times verse 22 starts a new paragraph in most of our English versions. By the way, I'm going to get into the details quite a bit because I think they're necessary here. Uh, but verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I know that when Tex read that and when I said that, some people check out. There's a visceral reaction. Uh, images of Stepford wives, maybe. Um, unhealthy marital dynamics, unhealthy societal dynamics jump in when we hear that. Um, and I would just say, before you check out, hang with me. Let's look at what's going on in this passage. Um, because again, obviously, tragically, Ephesians 5 has been used in really unhelpful ways. It's been taught, I think, in some unhelpful ways that have uh, brought about kind of this in inequity, um, this oppressive servitude that is at odds with what Paul's actually saying. Uh, it's at odds with the, the whole of Ephesians, at odds with the New Testament and the tone of Scripture. Um, and so one thing I really like about our lectionary is it started, you probably saw in verse 15. Lots of times when people read this, they start in verse 22, but you can't actually do that. It doesn't work. You need to look at the immediate context. Verse 15 uh, runs down to verse 21. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, and what's important to know here is that verse 22 doesn't actually have a verb. It's actually so connected to verse 21 when you read it through um, that it pulls that verbal idea of submission from verse 21. Um, and it should do that. That's correct. The, the, the translation does it. But the paragraph break doesn't give you that clue, does it? You think this is a totally separate idea. Um, here's the way this actually reads. This is why I think the context is so important. Um, the verb for this, it's actually back up in verse 18. It's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what Paul is telling them. And then he gives them some ways of doing that. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing and making melody. Giving thanks always submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Those are all ways that we are filled with the Spirit. They hang on that command. And then you get to verse 22. And what you actually read, if you're digging in, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence to, for Christ's wives to your husbands. It's just implied there. And again, it's correctly translated, but that paragraph break is really bad. Um, and Paul's bad about run-on sentences, so I get it. Like to our, our, our eye, it doesn't work that way. But verse 21 is a hinge. Um, it's a hinge. And all this is about being filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it gives an example in these relationships. Wives and husbands, children and parents, uh, servants and masters. Um, I think that's important to know. 
And it's important to see that this is practical about these relationships. It's not a how, for example, men and women should relate in society at large. It's saying, hey, in these marital relationships, in these parenting relationships, here's how this works. If you want to know how we're supposed to relate to each other more broadly, it's right there in verse 21. We, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, we don't have to go very far to see the context of what's really going on here for Paul, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, very, very interesting. And again, the example of Christ, uh, <laughs> that's power being wielded and power being given up for us. It's, it's self-giving love. And so let's think for a moment, if you receive this letter, if you're in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, um, they bring this letter, they read it to your house church. What, what are you thinking through? Um, how is your understanding maybe of, of husbands and wives and men and women and children and parents, how is it a little bit different than what we would have today? Well, two things that are important. First of all, um, the, the first century, this Greco-Roman culture was very ordered. It was very hierarchical. And there were clear lines of power and authority and submission, and it all trickled down. Um, the surprising thing, if you originally heard this, would not be that, that someone should be submitting. It's that we should submit to one another. That mutual submission is very different than the trickle-down submission that was common in the first century. One scholar, Timothy Gombus, he points out that Paul's instructions here are radically subversive. Because where there are some hierarchical relationships in culture, Paul will address uh, the assumed subordinate member first. So if in the broader culture they put husbands above wives, what's Paul doing addressing wives first? That's intentional. What he's doing is he's actually addressing them as a person. He's giving them unprecedented dignity for that day and time. He's saying you are a full, equal participant in the people of God. Normally, if you read first century documents about wives and children, they're not mentioned. Out of sight, out of mind, not acknowledged as having any kind of dignity. And Paul is speaking to them. Because among God's new people, there is no place for control or domination or manipulation or exploitation. Mutual respect, mutual service, self-giving love is to be the norm. That's to be our ethic. And so Paul draws an analogy between the relationship that the husband and wife have. He says it's like the relationship between Christ and the church. It's a pretty big vision. Um, that, that's hard to get your head around. And we'll say more about this, but there's some interesting things. He says that the husband is the head of the wife. That phrase, head, very, very tricky. I think Chris did a whole paper on the Greek word head in one of his seminary classes. Because it's, it's a little iffy. Uh, it's tough to figure out exactly what's going on. And that's not, by the way, to give you any lack of trust in this translation. It's just to say, like Peter said in one place, sometimes Paul's a little hard to understand. And we have to dig into it. And so when Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife, it's probably best understood as source. That in some way, the wife is sourcing, comes from uh, the husband and in the similar way, the church is sourced in and comes from Christ. So what's happening there? Well, usually whenever the Bible is talking about marriage, 
you can be sure that the creation story is looming in the background. Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we have the creation of humanity, man and woman. Significantly, we see the institution of marriage in that passage. Listen to what it says in Genesis 2. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother, clings to his wife. They become one flesh. That's, that's the idea of source. It comes from the side. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um, and man and woman are to be one flesh. This picture, this beautiful symbol of unity, walking together. Um, this is not original to me, but I love it. Someone had pointed out that Eve uh, was not fashioned from Adam's head to rule over him. Uh, nor from his feet to serve him, but from his side to walk along beside him. Even in that image, you see a little bit of what Paul is talking about. So how does this relate to the church? Well, think about what you know. If you've read the account of Jesus' crucifixion, he's on the cross. One moment, it is finished, gives up his spirit, and what does the soldier do to make sure that he's dead? They pierce him in the side. And, and what comes out? It says blood and water come out. And there's a couple things to know there. First, at a biological level, that means he's dead. You know, he truly died. He was truly raised to life. Uh, but also, you know, we like to use our, our, our good imaginary lens. We, we read through the great tradition of the church. And the church is always saying, if you see blood, you, you say communion. And if you see water, you say baptism. And so they've said in the same way that Eve, Adam's spouse, came from his side, here, communion and baptism, the church comes from the side of Jesus. That's what's happening here. That's, that's some of the imagery uh, that Paul is leveraging. It's, it's beautiful that Adam is the source of Eve and Christ is the source of the church came across a great New Testament scholar. His name is Klein Snodgrass. Not the greatest name, but Dr. Snodgrass, let's call him. Um, actually an ordained Southern Baptist. And I love Southern Baptists. I grew up Southern Baptist. Um, they're not known for being very progressive socially, right? We can all agree on that. Even my Baptist friends would agree. He says, if you read through this passage, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, he says that verse, verse 23, is one of the most abused and debated texts in the New Testament. Its focus is not on the privilege or dominance of the husband. And he says Paul never intended to suggest that wives were servants, compelled to follow any and every desire of the husband. Now, the text does not, for example, tell uh, women to obey their husbands, nor does it give any license for husbands to attempt to force submission. It says Ephesians 5.23 does not focus on authority, but on the self-giving love of both Christ and the husband. To the extent that there's a leadership role, it's not in order to boss his wife or use his position as a privilege. A priority is placed here on the husband that's contrary to the first century and that it is for the benefit of his wife. It's for her good, for her flourishing, the activity of both wife and husband is based in their relationship to Christ and his giving himself to the church. 
So mutual submission and self-giving love. Let's look at this last little part. Self-giving love. Um, Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we have these hard sayings. And I feel like this whole passage, they're hard sayings. How do we do this? Um, Really? Love your wives as Christ loved the church? I mean, good luck. Um, I mean, I, I, I can't reach that bar. Um, you know, uh, just like later on, I would say that the command for wives to respect their husbands and love their husbands, all of this is not setting new standards. It's just a specific application of the call for all Christians to love one another, um, to submit to one another, to, to respect one another, um, to not count their own rights or privileges first, like it says in Philippians 2 following the example of Jesus, who laid down his power and privilege, even unto death, even unto death uh, on a cross. Husbands and wives are to mutually submit, mutually respect, mutually love. I think that's the overall thrust of this passage. Um, And again, it's also worth noting this call for husbands to love their wives is evidence of how Paul cared for women. Now, sometimes Paul gets a bad reputation, like he's against women. Um, But Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives. Uh, Dr. Snodgrass, our our great Southern Baptist leader again, says, in the ancient world, husbands had relatively few obligations. Beyond providing food and shelter, they were free to do as they pleased. Paul's words changed the picture dramatically because the husband is asked to place the well-being of his wife first and to give himself to caring for her. See how that's way different than how those relationships were working in broader society. Um, And then interestingly, we have this call uh, for wives to respect their husbands. Um, And I'm just going to suggest that this probably has something to do with the context as well. It's not as clear, like we're at verse 21 before verse 22. But they're reading this in the city of Ephesus. Uh, That's, again, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world. And they were famous for a temple, the Temple of Artemis. If you know your mythology, Artemis is this fierce uh, hunter goddess. Um, And her temple in Ephesus is known as one of the seven ancient uh, wonders of the ancient world. It was magnificent. Um, And here's the other thing to know, that if you were in Ephesus and you were following this uh, Artemis, um, if the broader world was, was overly patriarchal, then those following Artemis overcorrected in the other direction. And it was radically anti-male, anti-husbands. I came across some some data that if you were going to be um, an acolyte, if you were going to serve in Artemis' temple, um, and you were a male, I'm going to say this gently because we've got kiddos, uh, let's just say you would have to go through a knife ritual before you could serve. And so think about if you're Paul and you're trying to talk about how do we have healthy, flourishing relationships in light of the gospel, and you're trying to actually thread this needle between this broader culture that's tremendously, problematically patriarchal and this local culture that's overcorrected the other direction. Well, that's how you get wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. That's what he's doing here. It's very 
practical. It's very pastoral. Paul's meeting them where they are. And then he's also aware of the broader culture. He wants to navigate this middle way. Um, By the way, notice I haven't said a lot about um, specific tasks or roles within the marriage relationship. Um, That's intentional because I've heard lots of sermons on this that have all kinds of roles and things to do in the house. I'm like, I I don't see that here. I mean, I know we've got some broader cultural stereotypes that are probably coming in there, um, but that's not directly related to this passage. Um, And so you might ask, well, then how do husbands and wives figure out how this relationship works? Who does what? When do we do it? How do we make decisions? Those are good questions. And I would say if we go all the way back to verse 15 that we started with, that's probably our best starting point. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom. Wisdom is different than law, and wisdom is different than stereotypes. And the way we make our way forward on the day-to-day practical level requires wisdom and charity. You see, rather than forcing our marriages into bad cookie-cutter stereotypes, that aren't reflections of this passage, um, we should be wise. And that means, for example, figuring out strengths and weaknesses. What am I good at? What's this person good at? Um, What are our gifts? What are our callings? What about temperament and preference? We have to look at those as we order our lives together. Um, And our lot, you know, some of y'all know I'm married. That's Anglicans. Clergy get to do that, which is great. Thanks be to God. Um, And there's some things that I do really well and I'm gifted at, and I'll do those things in our relationship, in our household. And there's things that my wife does really well and she's good at. And so she does those things in our household. And those may not lay down over kind of traditional stereotypes, but they're how we walk in wisdom and charity. It's how you build a life together. Um, And you need communication uh, to do that. We've got to look at our strengths, weaknesses, gifts, callings, temperaments, and preferences. And then go, okay, what's this look like? Mutual authority, mutual submission, mutual love for one another out of reverence for Christ. Mark Roberts, he actually has a commentary on Ephesians and he's a pastor. I find pastors do good commentaries on this kind of sticky stuff. He says the main point is not the distinct roles of husband and wife, but rather the unity between them. Unity, as seen in the one fleshness of the creation story Unity as between a head and a body. Unity as between Christ and the church. It says Paul is not writing a detailed marriage manual, considering all possible scenarios, but painting with broad strokes a picture of marriage in the first century that's transformed and shaped by the story of God. That's what he's doing here. All right, let's look at this last verse, Ephesians Uh, 5.32, one of these last verses. Paul writes, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Um, It's interesting. Because if you are are a married person, um, what Paul's saying is that your union, your marriage, is more profound than you can ever imagine. Because that unity itself bears witness to the gospel um, and actually teaches us about the gospel. Um, The marriage reminds us of unity. 
Like as we see a married couple, we can say, oh, it's not good uh, for man to be alone. It reminds us that we're meant to be in relationship. And so marriage can be an icon, a sign, an arrow pointing uh, to the gospel. Uh, But it's not ultimate. It's an arrow. It's a sign. At one point, even Jesus kind of talks about marriage and the new creation. It's, It's not there in the same way. It's a temporary calling uh, for some in the church. And that's why alongside healthy marriages in church, we, we need a healthy view of what it means to be single in the church. Um, you know, thinking back over my childhood, there was a period of time when most American churches uh, were like Noah's Ark at the least. You know, Noah's Ark, everyone came in two by two. Everything at the church was geared towards couples or towards families. Um, And we love marriages here. We love families. We want to do everything we can uh, to support marriages and family. But there's got to be a healthy place for singles as well. Um, And actually, the great tradition of the church has always uh, had a place for those called to singleness, sometimes an elevated place, a place of prominence, um, or who find themselves in a season of singleness. Um, There are folks who are called to lifelong singleness. Um, There's a lot of us who are going to have been single or will be single, um, just for different life circumstances. What does that look like in the church? Um, What gift is that to the church? What's it teach the church? Um, Because I would would say that just like marriage teaches teaches us in the church that we're made for relationship, singleness teaches us that, that the ultimate relationship we're made for is with our Creator. That, that no single person is sufficient for the relationship and the desire that we have and that we need with the Lord. Um, it's interesting. I think we need both healthy marriages, healthy singles. We need that symbol of union, and we need that reminder that our ultimate fulfillment and union is with God alone. Eastern Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann, it's a great name, Schmemann, says man is a hungry being but he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally a desire for him. By the way, um, and I, I don't have as much time as I would like to develop this because you probably are hungry, so I get that. But being single, especially in the church, shouldn't consign you to loneliness. In fact, the church should be one of the places of, of family and of rich community and belonging for all of God's people, young, old, male, female, married, single. What we have here is a vision, a beautiful vision of mutual authority, mutual submission, mutual love, mutual respect, mutual call to holiness out of reverence for Christ because he first and fully and finally loved us, loved you and me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.